Amen. Thank you, Miss Ann. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. What a tremendous uh, time to be able to come back and be with you. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, I've been out for two Sundays, uh, and it is good to be back. Uh, wonderful trip that God allowed me to experience, wonderful mission that he allowed me to be a part of. But I do tell you that there is something about worshiping every week with, the, with those you call family. And I am thankful to be back and thankful to be able to share with you this morning. And I have to get right into the passage. I don't know if you noticed this, but when Bill came to pray, in his back pocket was a yellow rag. You thought he was using that for cooking purposes. He actually has passed it on to the back so that if I start running out of time, they will start flagging me down. So I want to get right into our passage today as we talk about God's will for us as a church, especially living in these turbulent times, these uh, turbulent times of, of recognizing all that we face and somehow remaining true to our God. I want you to see that today in this passage as we look at Abraham and his heart for his son. Notice beginning in verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants, I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will, sh you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master and swore to him concerning this matter. It's a beautiful picture of Abraham's concern for his son. In these opening verses, it tells us this about Abraham. It says that he is old and that he is reflecting back upon his life and he recognizes how blessed he is. Now, Abraham is around 140 years old, 140 years old. Some 65 years before God had called him and had taken him into a new journey of his life, a journey of faith. And it says that through all of those days that somehow God had blessed him. What a beautiful picture of God's work in his life and the reflection that he had. You know, so many of us today, we could stop no matter where we are in life, no matter what time frame we find ourselves in or what season of life we find ourselves in. We could stop and say, God, you know what? You have blessed us right? God, you have been so good to us. And I know this weekend we've talked a lot about gratitude and especially thanksgiving as it relates to the freedom that God has given us. But really, when we look around this congregation, all of us have received blessing from God. 
And Abraham had received that blessing. And God had promised him that, had he not? And God had been faithful to to give him exactly what was necessary for his life. Remember, God had said to Abraham, if you leave and if you'll follow me and you'll be a part of my family, then somehow I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless those who come in contact with you. He had said that. And now we have again that faithful reminder of God's work in Abraham's life. It says he's old, he's reflecting upon his life, and he knows that God has blessed him. God has blessed him so uniquely and so powerfully. And then his attention, his concern turns to his son, Isaac. Isaac, who would be about 40 years old. And as he's looking at Isaac, he begins thinking about his family and how the promise will continue and the marriage that should come. Isaac, this one that had been promised, the promised child, Abraham now turns his attention to there. Now, so many times we turn our attention to our children as well, right? Some of us who are parents, We'll turn our attention to our children. We'll think about them. We'll think about what is best for them. We'll think about their future. Some of you, some of you there with me? Some of you there with me this morning? You think about your children. You think about uh, where they will go and, and the decisions that they'll make. And you pray for them, do you not? I mean, there are days you, that they are such a concern for your heart and your life that you just, you just pray for them. You pray that God would work in them and help them as they make the right decisions. You pray that they will never end up at LSU. You pray, you pray, you pray. (laughs) And you take the necessary activity in your life that they won't end up at LSU. That is, you don't pay for it if they go, right? You pray that they would make the best choices for their lives. Not only in their education, but in their careers and in their service to God and even, well, yes, even in the individual that they will marry. You pray for them. Now, I understand as we walk through this today and as we pray, uh, you know, we all face this as God's blessed us with children and grandchildren. As they come up, we face the decisions that they will make. Abraham had faced this with Isaac. Isaac had been the apple of his eye, remember? He had waited so long for the promised child. God had said he was going to come, but he waited so long to experience Isaac, to experience the birth of that promised child. When he was 100 years old, finally God had fulfilled the promise. And for 40 years, don't you know that Isaac had received every benefit and blessing that Abraham could bring into his life. Those 40 years must have been tremendous between a father and a son. And now again, he is praying. He is thinking about what his future will be. So notice what Abraham says. Abraham calls his oldest servant in and he asks him to take an oath. A similar oath is taken in Genesis 47 as Jacob looks at Joseph, his son, as he makes him swear an oath that he will not allow his remains to be there in Egypt, but rather that those remains would be taken back to the promised land. A similar oath, an oath of commitment that he asked his servant to make. And what is this oath? What is this request? What does Abraham ask? Well, Abraham says... 
I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. What is his heart? What is he hoping? What is he praying for Isaac? What is he asking now for his servant to do? Well, just like many of you, as you have prayed that your child would marry the right person, that that child would find somebody that serves the Lord and would marry that individual so that they could collectively serve the Lord together. Abraham is praying in such a way, and he is asking for that help from his servant. He wants Isaac to marry the right person. And he recognizes, he knows that that right person, well, that right person is not found in that land. It's not going to be a Canaanite That's not going to be God's intention and God's will for Isaac, a Canaanite. Now, what's so bad about a Canaanite? I mean, what in the world would Abraham have against a Canaanite? Listen, as you read this passage, I want you to understand that this is not about ethnicity. This is not about which people you come from necessarily. it's It's not about those kinds of things. Rather, when you read this passage, and especially as you hear Abraham's heart, you will see that Abraham wants Isaac to marry an individual that shares the same values and purposes and identity that Isaac has. He wants him to share the same values and purposes. So he says, I want you to go back to the land that I've come from, and I want you to go and I want you to find a wife for Isaac. Well, if it only worked that way today, right? If you could only choose the person, if you could only find the right individual, but today, and rightfully so, individuals have a choice of whom they will marry and whom they will commit their lives. Now, that choice, you know, it, 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 it can come at different ages. Uh, I was 21. Leslie was 20. Do you know that her mother had to sign for her to get married? See, we're not as backwoods in Mississippi as you thought, huh? 21 and 20 are the choice we make. My daughter, Abigail, she'll be 28 before she can make that choice. <laughs> Choices come at different times of our lives. Who we will marry. And who we'll spend the rest of our lives with. Here, though, in this culture, Abraham had that responsibility not only to teach Isaac, but to make sure that Isaac was going to marry the right individual, the right individual that would seek the values and priorities and purpose and identity that God had given them. So that's the reason he sends his servant. He sends his servant to find this wife. Don't marry... Don't let him marry a Canaanite. Now, understand this is a lesson that is well learned in the life of Israel. A lesson that is well learned. At times, it's learned uh, in such a way that it brings heartache and pain to the nation. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses, he is standing before the people. He is giving them a new challenge. They are about to go in and to possess the land 
And Moses preaches three different messages in the book of Deuteronomy to the people to challenge them. And in that first message in Deuteronomy chapter 7, what does he say to them? He says to the people of Israel, do not go in and do not intermarry with these Canaanites. Continue to read down. He speaks about how they do not serve the same God that the nation of Israel served. They did not have the same values. They did not have the same practices. And Moses said, do not go in and thus marry into these other, indivi- these other tribes, these other individuals that do not affirm God. You see, it's the same principle that Abraham had when he was looking for a wife for Isaac. Moses just reaffirms it for the whole nation. And again, as you look through the life and the history of Israel, you see the pros and the cons. You see those moments where they are not faithful to the covenant and not faithful to Moses' words. And you see those moments where they have come back to God and where they have sought him. King Solomon, for example. King Solomon. Remember him? We believe him to be the wisest man who ever lived because he had such wisdom from God. Probably one of the wealthiest men who ever lived on the face of the earth, King Solomon. It was under King Solomon that the nation of Israel, well, the nation of Israel saw its glory and splendor. Now, David had laid the path for him, but Solomon, it was during the years of Solomon where the nation demonstrated its power and its strength and God's glory. It's a wonderful story to look at until you remember Solomon and his personal life. Solomon, do you remember how many wives he had? Solomon had, I hear all this whispering I hope it's about the message. Some of you smelling fish now, probably. Solomon had 700 wives. 700 wives. He also had 300 concubines. I've said this before, but when I was up in North Mississippi and my preacher would talk about concubines, I had a... Mr. Wade, who always sang in the choir, he would always make sure that we understood. He would speak out what the preacher was preaching. And he would make sure that we understood that concubines were not the same thing as combines. (laughs) North Mississippi, you understand. Concubines. Basically, these other relationships that he would have with other women. So, basically, a thousand different women. Now, I understand that a lot of his marrying was because of political alliances. You'll see that he'll marry the, the daughter of an Egyptian pharaoh so that somehow he could seal the political devotion and allegiance between the two. He would do that. He would marry and he would make sure that he would, he would consolidate his power in the, in the life of Israel. But I want to say to you that Solomon and his choices led to some tragic consequences in his life. King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. And yet, 
When you read about how his wives influenced his heart, how they led him away from the one true God to the gods of their peoples. And when you see the wicked behavior and the abomination that takes place, he allows his children to be passed through the fire. King Solomon, the wisest. And yet, how he had failed in his choices. Later on, when the people of God come back from Babylon, after their captivity, and some could link their discipline all the way back to Solomon and to David and to the choices that they made in their relationships. But when they come back from Babylon in that captivity, what have they done again? Well, they've done the same thing. They've embraced the culture around them. They've compromised their values. They've married Canaanite girls and Canaanite guys. And in Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10, they're called back to a covenant renewal. Ezra, when he finds out what they've done and how they have repeated that sin, he mourns. He grieves over their disobedience and their rebellion. They come back to God. I say to you that this principle of not marrying a Canaanite girl not only was evident in Abraham's life, but it permeated the whole existence of Israel. And they learned that lesson over and over and over. Now again, what is the basic principle of not marrying a Canaanite girl? Not coming to that place where you compromise your values and you compromise your identity by entering into such a relationship that influences you away from God. How does this apply to us today? Let me give you two ways which I think it applies to us today. First, obviously, clearly, we in our lives need to be careful of the relationships we enter into. We need to be careful, especially for those of you who are single. Now, some of you, God has called you to remain single. That's what he says to us in his letter first letter or so to the Corinthians. He says that there are some people that should remain single. You should not hear the pressure of this culture and simply enter into a relationship because you feel like that's what everybody has to do. Singleness is a gift that God has given. So in some sense, in some ways, some of you, you can remain single. Those of you who are single though and, and you feel like God has called you to be married, well, he has given you some guidance. I remember one Sunday, I talked about singleness and how it was okay to be single and uh, how God ordains that and has a giftedness around that. The next morning, I received a text from one of my young men and says, what if you don't feel single? What if God hadn't called you to be single? Can you help me in that area, preacher? <laughs> he was about 40 and he was ready to get married. So, well, you have to be patient. You have to wait. And you have to remember this, that God has a will and God has a purpose and God's will and God's purpose is for you to marry someone that would help you glorify him. It would be somebody with the same values and principles and identity in Christ. Paul explicitly speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, some people try to take that and say it could be business and other areas, and they, they might even try to dismiss marriage. But friends, when you're married, you're yoked, right? Be careful what you say. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement is the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. I think this is a message that is lost in our churches today. Where individuals who are coming to be married, coming to enter into a relationship with somebody else permanently, that God has called us to marry other believers because we share the same priorities and values and identity. Now, when I was working with youth at Blue Springs Baptist Church up in North Mississippi, um, I was but a youth myself, but I was working with them and talking with them about relationships. And I saw something develop over the time, something that I referred to as missionary dating. You know what I'm talking about? Missionary dating. It would be where these girls, especially, I don't know, guys might do this too, but it seemed like the girls were prone to look for these guys that they believed that they could change. And they would go and before you know it, they would be dating. Now, that was good for the numerical growth of your youth group, right? If you had these attractive ladies who were bringing in these other guys, it was good for your numbers to grow your Sunday school. But I was always concerned about this idea of missionary dating. Now, I'm not saying that some of you, some of you married individuals that came to faith in Christ, and that is an awesome thing, a wonderful thing that God has done. But I want to remind you today, especially those of you, of you young ladies, you young guys who are dating, let me remind you, only God can change a person. Now, he can use influence. That's great. But do not be unequally yoked. What you'll find is when you come into the influence of those who have different priorities and values and identity, so often they will lead you astray. Now, I know some of you look at me this morning and say, not me, Brother Reggie. Uh-uh, no, not me. Man, I am steadfast. Read my Bible every day. I pray. Nobody's leading me astray anywhere. Remember, pride goes before a fall. And remember King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. And how the influence of others led him to a place he could have never envisioned. I say to you that we need to preach and teach today. We need to preach and teach today that believers should enter into relationship with believers. We need to teach and preach that to our children. It's for their benefit. It's for their growth in Christ. But let me see a larger context here for you just in a few moments I have. 
Not only does it speak to that personal relationship, I think, but especially as you understand the scripture, as you look through it, even in the Old Testament, you can understand our relationship with God as a marriage, if you will. Our relationship with the Lord, a covenant, a commitment. The book of, well, in the Old Testament, you'll see many times where God affirms himself in relationship with his people, Israel, right? There will be moments when Israel goes away and it will be described in terms of unfaithfulness. It'll be described in terms of adultery. The most extended metaphor of this probably is in the book of Hosea, which reminds us again how God was faithful to his people even when his people were unfaithful to him. And it likens it to a marriage relationship. Because see, what Abraham understood in Genesis 24 was is that they were affecting all of salvation history here. I mean, think of this. The promised child, Isaac, he knew he had to be married because he was going to bring forth children that would continue the line and and bring forth this nation. And what he prayed and what he hoped was that Isaac would remain faithful to God. And what he hoped and what he prayed was that the nation and the children and those who would come afterwards, that they would remain faithful to the Lord above. And Abraham understood that would only come as it would only come as they were devoted and committed to that unique relationship they had with God. It would not come through compromise. It would come through commitment. So he was hoping that he would affect all of the nation and the nation would recognize that in their lives. Well, we look around today, we also recognize that you and I have entered into a relationship with God, right? We have. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of the greater body, which has been referred to as the bride of Christ. You and I represent the bride of Christ, And that unique, wonderful relationship that we have with him. So, if we are the bride of Christ, God calls us to remain committed, right? To be devoted to that relationship. But so often, what do we do? We marry the Canaanite girls. Now, I'm not talking about literally or physically marrying the Canaanite girls. I'm talking about spiritually we marry the Canaanite girls. We buy into what the world offers and we accept their values and we accept their purposes and we accept their identity when God has called us to remain true. James, James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, strong terminology, As he speaks to his people. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How strong that language is. 
that as we compromise ourselves, as we marry into the Canaanite culture, it says that we actually set ourselves against God. Now, I love our country. I was gone for about 10 days, five of those without luggage, and to another country. It was a beautiful country, wonderful people, wonderful work that God was doing. But there's something about coming home, and there's something about our country and something about the freedom we have. And I would rather be here still today, if God allows, in the freedom that we have than in any other place around the world. I still would be. But that doesn't mean we're without problems. That doesn't mean that we are without a need for repentance in our lives, in our nation's life. What we have seen over the past few weeks in particular has been a culture that has expressed itself against God. And unfortunately, unfortunately, many of us in the church have compromised as well. You see, I'm not so shocked at the occurrences of the last few weeks. I really am not. We see a culture that is growing more hostile to God and toward his gospel. So why should we be shocked that the world would reject his ideals and his promises? Why would we even begin to be surprised by that? Remember when Jesus was praying that night before he was to be crucified and he prayed for our unity, he prayed for empowerment in our lives. What did he say? He said, because I know that the world will hate them just as they hated me. Why? Because we're not of the world. We're not of the world. We don't find our source and our strength and our principles in the world system, in the world's context. So thus, they will turn their fury toward us as his disciples. I think we're only beginning to see the very tip of that hostility toward believers, especially toward those who still affirm the Scripture. But my friends, as we think about our culture, and so many times we could bemoan the things that are going on, may I say to you that I'm most concerned not about the culture which we should expect to stand against God. I am most concerned about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and its faithfulness to him. You see, the problem is not with unbelievers. Unbelievers will never act like believers until they have encountered the living Lord. But if we are the children of God, if we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we should demonstrate holiness and righteousness in our living. Understand we are where we are today because we as a people, we as a church, because we have gone out and we have compromised the truth and we have married into the Canaanite culture that Abraham had prayed Isaac would never know. Today you would find the same kind of morality in our churches as you would find in our culture. Today you would find the same kind of thinking 
the same kind of compromise in our churches that you would find in our culture. And I say to you, God has called us back to that true, authentic relationship with him. That we are married to him in a unique, exclusive relationship. And he calls us to affirm it. I'd say to you, I'd, I'd be as bold to say this. If you're watching this television broadcast and you're part of a church and denomination that has compromised on the biblical uh, foundations, I say to you, run. Find a place that teaches what God has said and God's ideal. Because he wants us as God's people to stand for what is right, what is true. We should reject hatred. We should reject hostility. We should reject this relativistic truth that is out there today. And we should embrace our relationship with him. Get this. What happens? Very quickly. I'm out of time. What happens in this relationship as the servant goes? Well, he finds a wife. It's a beautiful picture. You ought to read about it. He finds a wife. Remember, he was concerned though, right? He was like, now, how am I going to convince a young lady to come back over here? I didn't, I, you won't even let me take Isaac with me. How am I going to convince her to come back here? And Abraham said, get this, the faith of Abraham. An angel will go before you. You don't worry about it. God's going to take care of this. But if, he does, if, if that woman doesn't come, you don't worry about it. But I want you to keep your commitment to me that you will not allow him to experience the values and the purposes and the identity of the Canaanites. And God grants a wife a blessing. I believe this to my heart, is that if we seek God with all of who we are, if we seek him, God's always going to be faithful and true to provide exactly what we need and where we need it. My friends, those of us who have children and grandchildren in particular, it is time for us to not only teach what is true, but it's time for us to come together and pray that God would keep our children and grandchildren true to his word and that relationship. We think we've seen a hostile culture so far. We haven't seen anything. We need to pray that they would not marry into the Canaanite vision, but rather they would serve the one true God above all of their lives in all of their relationships in all of their practices that they would serve him. Would you join me in that today? Would you call out to God and ask him to allow us to serve him? Would you call out to him for your children and your grandchildren, for your family and your nation? Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are burdened. Lord, our hearts are concerned. And God, I pray that this morning you would move that concern and that burden to action in our lives. This morning, I pray that you would, God, allow us to bend our knees. 
that we would bend our lives and surrender to you. That we would remain faithful. God, I pray for our children and our grandchildren. Lord, I pray that today, those who are in this place, that you will help them as they stand for you. And Lord, as they reject a Canaanite culture, but Lord, they embrace a culture of life, a culture of liberty that's found only in you. God, be with us now. Bless us. Help us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.